The reading is taken from Acts 26, verses 1 to 23. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know the way I, I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet, I have appeared to you as a witness, I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day, and so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, all. Welcome to Knox. My name is Phil Reinders. 
senior minister here at Knox. If you're new here, what we regularly do on a Sunday is we read a portion from the Bible and take some time to reflect on it. What does this mean for our lives? We're working through the book of Acts here at Knox. We're nearing the end. Three more Sundays that we're going to wrap up the book of Knox, uh, the book of Acts. (laughs) The book of Knox. Who wrote the book of Knox? (laughs) The book of Acts. Well, I'm hoping it's the book of Knox. I'm hoping we find our story in that story of the early church. So it's not that bad a a misnaming of things. Um, But as we work through the book of Acts, we are hoping to find ourselves in that book, in that story, because it is the story of the church throughout time. And what we see in the book of Acts, we can expect to see and live out today. But before we dive in, let's take a a moment just to pray. Join me in prayer, would you? Father in heaven, we thank you for the living word that you speak to us. God, we pray that this would not be just simply ink on paper, but somehow this living truth would jump out at us and come alive for us in a new way. And so we pray, open our hearts today. Wherever we are at, whatever place or disposition we come to today, we pray that you would gently crack open our hearts to hear you speak to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. What does it look like for us to talk about our faith, to talk about Jesus in this cultural moment we inhabit right now? In our current day, when I talk to a lot of different people, people find it harder and harder to know how to genuinely dialogue, how to share our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, as believers in Jesus, that's a critical part, a central part of of our faith, is to, to share with those that God has placed in our lives, to share the good news, to do it with thoughtfulness, to do it with gentleness, with respect, with humility. And at Knox, we desire to be that sort of church, a a church where your friends who may not be Christians can feel welcome, where they can find their questions invited and encouraged, where their doubts can be respected. We have always, the the church's history has always been developing this outward face. Um, This is part of the DNA of this church, and we believe that's a central part of what it means to be a Christian. It's one of the joyful effects of the gospel that we joyfully tell others, this is good news. And so at at our church, we try to put out a welcome mat for skeptics, doubters, questioners. Um, We believe worship should be done in a way that that those who are not Christian can understand it and connect with it. We want to re-energize our church to be more outwardly facing our community, to habitually extend ourselves towards outside the faith. But anyone who attempts to do that knows that in our cultural moments, there are pressures to keep your religious beliefs to yourself. Don't talk about them at work. When you go out to the pub with your friends, don't bring that up. Just keep them private. And that brings upon us the difficult, sometimes uncomfortable choice to publicly identify as a Christian. Think of that. For, and I know, I talked to many of you at your workplaces or in your neighborhoods to, to believe that God became man in Jesus Christ 
and that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, that, for most people we interact with, is tantamount to, to believing in Santa, right? You know, maybe an innocent delusion for a child, but for an adult, a fully functioning adult, that's, that's foolish, even dangerous. The reality we face in the circles we live is sort of a growing suspicion towards Christianity and the Christian faith. The church has always known this. I mean, you read the book of Acts and you see repeated, persistent opposition to the advance of the gospel. And now in Acts chapter 26, which we just heard read to us, we see the Apostle Paul standing trial before Roman authorities. Previously in Acts chapter 20, Paul talked about his intent to go to Jerusalem. He was in another part of Asia Minor. He was going to go to Jerusalem, and he knew he was facing opposition because people were lying in wait there for him. They were going to raise up some trouble, which happened. Paul got arrested. He was tried first by Jewish authorities. They handed him over to Roman authorities. And then now here he is. And in chapter 26, we find Paul testifying before King Agrippa. False accusations had been laid against Paul, trumped up charges, and first a Roman governor, Festus, is going to send him off to Caesar, but he wants to make sure he's got the reasons right. So he calls in King Agrippa and says, listen in, let's work something out in terms of the reasons to explain what's going on. And so it's a picture here, Paul is on trial, which interestingly, this is a picture often of what it means to have a public faith. When when we go public with our faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is on trial. We and we are called as witnesses to give testimony to the truth, to answer questions, misunderstandings, accusations that need a response to speak truth. As I said, you know, we, we live in a secular age, and in that secular age, um, Christianity's on trial. And I think it's just important for us to recognize this. It changes how we approach things. Um, there's no longer a congenial acceptance of Christianity as a social good. And in our multicultural city, which is a place that draws people from every race, nation, and culture, um, people's understanding of Christianity might be quite removed or remote. They might have little understanding of who Jesus is, or they might think of Christianity as, as a colonizing force, something to be rejected. Um, all of this scenario of suspicion is not unlike the early church, what they experienced. Um, but unlike Paul, who was on trial, most of us are never going to be called into trial in very public platforms, before rulers, before authorities. For most of us, our experience is we're going to be called into the courtroom of everyday life, of ordinary living, where we are then called to, to give testimony. And how do we do that? You simply engage with people you know, and you tell them what happened to you. You tell them the impact of Jesus on your life. You simply point to Jesus. It's that simple. And that should be both comforting and convicting. The comforting thing is this, is you know what, it's really not up to you to change anyone's mind. So you don't have to feel like you need to pressure anyone to do that. All Jesus asks is that you point to him, to the beauty, to the goodness, to the truth of the gospel. 
to tell how it has made sense of your living, of your life. Just tell people. That's all our call. It is simple and basic. But here's the convicting part. The only way you can fail to be public about your faith, to fail to identify as a Christian, is if you hide who you are. If you hide your heart. If, if Jesus is central to your life, right? Central to the, to the way you think, you face problems, make decisions, set priorities. If you hide that. Because in a normal course of a relationship, as you get closer to someone, what often happens, what people expect to happen is increased transparency, right? You see more and more of who the other person is. And if you're a Christian, and the only way your friends miss knowing that you're a Christian is if they don't know who you are, as if you haven't disclosed the fullness of who you are. So how do we do this? How do we go public with our faith in Jesus in a winsome, in a thoughtful, in a respectful way? This passage, I think, is just rich with help for us as we think about what it means to share our faith in a, in a, in a constructive way. Paul's speech here is a really beautifully condensed summary. He's given this speech several times throughout the book of Acts, and now in a very concentrated form, he one more time, and this is his last speech in the book of Acts, he outlines his understanding. And so let's quickly walk through this and see what we can pick up in terms of how we might be prepared to give a reason for the hope that's within us. First of all, Paul finds common ground with those that he's addressing. Paul finds a point of meaningful contact. He knows the accusations coming at him are coming from a Jewish audience. The Jewish leaders who have really put him on trial and sent him to Rome. And so Paul begins to connect his faith, his hope right now, with his Jewish faith. He talks about his lifelong faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And he speaks of the hopes of the Jewish faith. And he says in verse 22, he says, I am saying nothing beyond what all the prophets and Moses have said would happen. He's saying this shouldn't be any surprise. I'm just I'm connecting the dots with this faith that I've had. So he begins with an appeal to which, which others would say, yeah, we, we agree with that. And think about for us today, where are those places of common ground with others? Because here's the beautiful reality. God has left clues and signs, insights into truth in the created world. The book of Ecclesiastes says that God has set eternity in our hearts. The philosopher Charles Taylor talks about how we live in this secular age, and yet he says we're haunted by the transcendent. We're haunted by some sense there is more to this world than what we see. That is the eternity God has set in the heart of every person. How do we connect with those clues, those hints, and draw the line back to the Creator? One important way to do this is is to begin an appeal to the common hopes of our culture. In every culture, there are these common hopes that people long for. What are those cultural narratives, those deep heart hopes of people you work with or hang out with? Let me just name one, and it's a huge one in our our culture. Our Canadian culture has this big, deep heart concern, a passion for unity within diversity, for justice. 
Contemporary people are asking all the time, and you see it in newspapers and conversations, how can we get past exclusion and exclusivism? How can we live at peace in a pluralistic world? How, how can we use whatever power or privilege we have um, and use it for the sake of others, not to dominate, but to, to serve others? How can we embrace the other who is different from us? The person who's very different in terms of viewpoint or culture. As a Christian, we can meet that heart hope of our culture. That is common ground because there is a deep concern for justice, for right relationships in the gospel. That is the common ground we find with so many people, and and we find it in Jesus. This is what Paul does. He finds the deep hopes of his fellow Jews and yet shows how Jesus is the fulfillment of that hope. He says in verse 6, it is because of my hope in what God promised our ancestors that I'm on trial. My hope in Jesus Christ that is connected with this long faith we've had, it's because of that that I'm on trial. And later he gets very explicit about that hope. He says, I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses have already said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer as the first to rise from the dead. Paul very clearly names the fulfillment of that hope. It is the Messiah. It is Jesus. That word Messiah means the anointed one. This Jesus is, is the one God had chosen to fulfill all those hopes. He is God's anointed one. He's saying to those Jewish leaders, everything you hope for in your faith, all that the scriptures have pointed to and waited for, it is now fulfilled in Jesus. And part of our witness in our world is, is doing a similar thing to point out how Jesus is actually the fulfillment of our culture's deepest hopes. How Jesus both fulfills and subverts our culture's hopes. It's interesting. That's what Jesus does. Wherever he, he, he comes to any individual culture or person, he fulfills the deepest aspirations, the deepest hopes, but he challenges them too. He says, I am the one who will give you precisely what your heart deeply hopes for, but as you follow my way. One writer, Dan Savage, talks about this. He, he uses this interesting phrase. He calls it about the subversive fulfillment of Jesus. Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of what you most deeply want and hope for, but I'm going to do it in a way that you will not expect. And only if you're willing to let go of the categories, let go of the beliefs that you've built your life around, and accept me will you find that true fulfillment. So think of our culture's hope for inclusion, for justice. We struggle to live that out culturally. We're not doing well at that because even the most inclusive people eventually exclude others. And the most passionate justice seekers so often turn out to be harshly judgmental of others. They fail to embrace people and end up often excluding, sometimes even oppressing those they disagree with. So how do we get around this? How do we see that deep hope that we all long for in Canada fulfilled? Jesus, who subversively fulfills those deep hopes. Jesus does this. Well, see, when we build our identity, our sense of self on whatever it is, our class, our race, our culture, on our values, our held values, we will necessarily reject or disdain anyone who we consider lacks those things. But if our highest love is, 
If our highest love is based on, you know, our nation, our family, our career, again, our values, we will disdain people from those other nations, families, classes, religions. If anything but God is our highest good, we're going to exclude, maybe even demonize, some other group of people, some other part of creation. But Jesus comes as the fulfillment of this hope. Think of the teaching of Jesus. The teaching of Jesus is some of the the clearest wisdom, challenging for sure, but clearest wisdom about how to live in this world. He talks about the call to love your enemy, the call to serve the poor, the call to, to seek and sacrificially serve the good of others. Jesus presents this radical life of love for all, and people see that and they say, yes. And then think of of the ministry of Jesus, the the miracles that he would use to heal the sick, his compassion for all, his embrace of the marginalized. He was a scandalous person in his culture. People didn't know where to fit him. And the way of Jesus, the way he lives his life, it, it is so beautiful. He fulfills the deepest hopes that our culture longs for. But yet, in fulfilling it, he subverts it too. Paul speaks of how radically different Jesus is. He is the suffering king. He is your greatest hope, he, but he's not the king you expect. Jesus suffered and he died. Jesus is the one who fulfills the created arc of the universe that leans towards justice, but did so by suffering and dying. Even for those who reject him, who opposed him. And on the cross, Jesus identifies with the powerless He becomes marginalized. He gives up power so that people might be brought in. And there's just no philosophy or faith that provides a more powerful foundation for accepting enemies, for embracing the other than Christianity does. Christianity is the only faith that has at its heart a man dying for his enemies, forgiving rather than destroying them. Jesus using his power not to squash people, but to lift them up and to serve them. I mean, this has to be presented to our culture as an unparalleled resource for living in peace in a pluralistic society, for pursuing justice without causing further injustice and exclusion. You see how Jesus is this subversive fulfillment of some of the deepest hopes of our culture. This is what Paul is doing here. He's pointing out how Jesus is his fulfillment. And then he points out the resurrection. This has always been a linchpin for Paul. He points out that Jesus is alive. And this is the great hope to which he pins his life. To name the resurrection. We, we need to do that, that. That Jesus is alive. And to do that is to, to say, first of all, this, this is a point of historical fact that you are invited to investigate and explore. As a witness, we're called to tell the facts, to tell the news of what has happened, that God raised Jesus from the dead. And the disciples would always go back to the resurrection, not because they had a spiritual vision of a resurrected Jesus. No, but because they, and then many witnesses after them, that they were eyewitness encounters with the risen Jesus Christ. Which means the gospel is not historical myth, but one based on eyewitness testimony. Paul is not saying to Agrippa, Agrippa, you know, if if this rings true for you, here's some spiritual truths. Try them out. See this, this helps 
your life. No, he is saying to Agrippa, Agrippa, these things have happened in history, in time and space. And a whole group of people were eyewitnesses to it. It is the invitation for him. Go, explore it. Check out the historical resources. Investigate it for yourself. But then to speak of the resurrection is also the invitation to see how a whole new world has entered this world, this broken world. It is the invitation to see that God is up to something so new that he is renewing everything that we thought was dead and broken and lost. That God is healing and restoring all that is bent and broken and bruised in this world in Jesus Christ. In Christ, God's kingdom has come and the resurrected Jesus is the Lord, the King of this new thing God is doing. And the invitation is for all of us to join in that renewal of all things, to walk in this newness of life. And then lastly, what Paul does is he points out the confidence that we can have. He says the gospel is for all people. He says that Jesus came to bring, quote, the message of light to his own people, that's the Jews, and to the Gentiles. He's saying this is a message of hope for all people. This is not a message just for a certain segment of the population, not for one racial group, not for one demographic factor. This is a message of hope, of life, of salvation for all people. Which means, again, that the gospel is not, you know, private spiritual advice. It is good news for all, for all people in all times and all places. The gospel is a public faith. And so Christians make then the uncomfortable choice sometimes to share the gospel with others because the gospel is that public faith. It's not private spirituality. It's not just meant for the realm of inner experience. It's public truth. And if the gospel is public truth, it needs to be made known to everybody. But you know, in our culture, that's seen as offensive, right? That's seen as wrong. People pushed back. Right now, the cultural narrative says, you know what? You, you can't say that you have the exclusive truth. That's wrong. That's narrow to think that way, to try to convert people. How do you respond to that? Well, for one thing, I think you can say that's misguided emotionally. Because that's not how the heart works, is it? When something good happens to us, when we are struck by the beauty or the goodness of something, we, we just can't help ourselves. We tell others, oh, you got to listen to this song. It is so fabulous. you got to check out this movie. It is the best. Right? Or think of this. If we know something that is going to help someone else, perhaps heal people, we're going to tell them. Imagine going to your doctor for an annual routine exam, let's say, and the exam reveals you have a treatable disease. Do you really want your doctor to think this way? You know, do you really want your doctor to think, ah, should I really tell her about this? Right? After all the word disease, it sounds, I don't know, so judgmental. Who am I to make a judgment about something so natural? Maybe I should be gracious. Maybe I should just keep my opinions to myself. That's not being gracious of a doctor, right? That's malpractice from a doctor. Grace would be for your doctor to, to look you in the eye and say, you know what, something is wrong here, but there is a way for healing. I know how to heal you. 
I wonder if it's malpractice for us not to share the Christian faith. There, there's an atheist who thinks so. You know the, the Vegas magicians, Penn and Teller? I don't know if you've ever been to Vegas. Or I have never been. I've seen Penn and Teller. Penn Gillette is one of the pair. And um, he's an atheist. So he does not believe. He's not a person of faith. But he has said this. He says, listen, I, I get Christians telling me about their faith. And he says, any Christian who doesn't tell me their faith is not a good Christian. Because he says, if you believe you have a cure for my soul and don't tell me, either I'm thinking you don't care for me or you don't really believe what you believe. Penn Gillette is showing just really that it's not emotionally sensible, not even logically sensible to withhold our faith. And it really is logically misguided to not share your faith with other people. I know people would say something like, you, you should not speak exclusive truth claims. You, you should not say your faith is superior to others. You should not say that you have the truth. Let, let everyone believe what they want to believe. But here's what's going on when someone says that, right? Someone is saying, you know what? I have a take on reality. My truth, which is that there is no truth greater than any other, is superior to all others, and you should follow it. That's the dynamic that's going on. Really, there are two kinds of people in the world. People who make claims to exclusive truth, and people who do it, but don't know they're doing it. See, it's an illusion to think that we can stop making exclusive truth claims. All of us do it, all the time. The real question is not getting rid of exclusive truth claims. The real, the important question we need to wrestle with is whose understanding of the truth is going to make them more loving, more respectful with those who differ from them? Whose truth claim is going to lead them to sacrificially give themselves to others, to tell others to do it in a gracious manner, not in an oppressive way at all? Followers of Jesus Christ find in Jesus the way to share the truth that they know in a loving, gentle, compassionate way. Has the church got it right all the time? No way, right? Failed miserably. That doesn't lessen the call for us to go there. Followers of Jesus are called to share the gospel that something amazingly good has happened in history. That the God of common sense, the God we all, this culture, has some knowledge of somewhere back, has opened up his life in the kingdom to us in Jesus Christ. And you got to know, whenever you tell people about Jesus Christ, it has some effect. Because the gospel is the power of God to salvation. And sometimes when you do that, you know what, you might be discouraged. And sometimes people might blow you off and they might think you're weird. But you just don't know what God is doing beneath the surface. His Spirit is at work, opening up hearts, touching lives. May God give all of us the absolute privilege and joy of seeing, of sharing the good news of Jesus and seeing other people come to faith in Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for all the beautiful ways that, that the gospel shapes us 
And it makes us the kind of people our world needs. People who can tell the truth without any sense of superiority. People who can speak, who can share the truth without oppressing or dominating or or crushing others. God, thank you for the, the promise of the Holy Spirit to give us boldness to do this. And we pray for all of us who might maybe shrink away from pointing to Jesus, and we pray that you would give a fresh boldness. May the truth of Jesus so come real to us that it would be the most natural thing for us to do. May we do it winsomely, God, not in forced, silly ways, but in the course of natural relationships. May who we are as followers of Jesus simply bleed out into beautiful conversations about life and about meaning, about purpose and faith. Thank you that your spirit is with us to have those conversations. Jesus, make us faithful witnesses. In your name we pray, amen.